CityCast from Explicity. In one of his dispatches from the front lines in North Africa during World War II, Ernest Hemingway wrote this about Italian soldiers. When these soldiers were injured slightly, they would proclaim loudly, swearing undying loyalty to Il Duce, Benito Mussolini. But when they were mortally wounded and lay dying on the battlefield, they would forget all about Mussolini. Instead, they would invoke their mothers. Mamma mia, they would say softly of their fate. One of the many vivid descriptions in Vasanti's book, Cutouts, Cast and Sinistars, a book about a recent period in Tamil Nadu politics, she described a parade that honoured the chief minister and matinee idol, M.G. Ramachandran, or M.G.R. One float in particular was pulled by an MGR fan with ropes attached by hooks to the man's bare and bleeding back. But that was an exception, Vasanti said. She wrote, and I quote, But on the whole, MGR fans prefer to flatter than to suffer. Vasanti's prose is replete with such observations. Vasanti found her muse, her expression, her creative expression, principally through the voices of women, one of her subjects is the fascinating actor and badass politician Jailalita, who had overcome the worst odds as a woman in the face of extreme and often physical misogyny of Tamil Nadu politics to become something of the queen of the state. And this from the very political platform that rejected such notions of hierarchical superiority, leave alone royalty. Vasanti's prose is the happy result of creative writing meeting disciplined journalism. She is bilingual in a real sense. Her writing in the English language, by which she has authored several books, is as real as her deep literary skills in Tamil. Her translators and my journalist friends have told me as much. It's an honor for me to welcome her as a guest on my show. Vasanti, welcome to the Literary City. Thank you. So happy to be with you here. First, your book on Jai Lalita. Mm. Everyone knows that she was not very media-friendly in such an event as her biographer. How do you plumb the depths of her mind? How do you know the answer to the question, why? I think she, she was an extraordinarily brilliant woman. I mean, she was a very intelligent woman. And then the circumstances actually shaped her the way she was. And... Um, I think uh, it was because of the way she was uh, treated by the main world, both in the world and the political world, you know. And, uh, she had a lot of uh, things against her. She, that is, she was a Brahmin and uh, she was um, educated, she was a woman. And uh, she was not a product of the Dravidian movement at all. She had come. She was born and brought up in Mysore and she came to, she was, she lived in Bangalore and then she came. She, people said she was a Kannadiga actually. So when uh, MGR, the, I mean, the matinee idol of those days, saw her and was so fascinated by her and was sorted, you know, that changed her life completely. She was given film roles and all that, and she became a very sought-after uh, actress. And then, But it was a male world, and uh, she must have met with a lot of humiliations and, you know, and uh, so that must have hurt her very deeply. And there was a coterie 
that wanted MGR to be away from her because we had great dreams about him, his uh, coming to power. And uh, so they tried their best to um, withdraw, I mean, uh, draw her away from MGR. And in fact, draw MGR away from her clutches, they said. And uh, that must have angered her. And she was a very, she was a person who never accepted defeat or humiliation. And all this must have made her so haughty because she knew that she was far superior in intelligence to all the men folk around. And she, when she came to power, it made her think that uh, she had to be, uh, she had to show that she was worse than the men around her. And she had to, I mean, unless she was more aggressive than they were, she could not uh, win in her battle. Speaking of battle, in recent times, the world has known many tough women heads of state. Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher, Sri Mavo Bandar Naika, Golda Meir. They have all started wars, if not conflicts. How is Jaya Lalita distinct from these ladies? Jaya Lalita was also a strong woman in her own right. Then, uh, you know, the, there was no occasion to start a war here in Tamil Nadu. Of course. So She did have a share of battle, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, especially Karunanidhi. Karunanidhi was, uh, was kind of... Uh, she thought he would he could just crush this woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all ridiculed her when she left the assembly in anger and said she would not step into that until she came back as a chief minister. And she had to flee the assembly because she was yes. assaulted, right? I mean, physically assaulted. So they just laughed, laughed it away, the guts, and they... Uh, conceit this woman had and how dare she and so but then then he found to his astonishment the greatest strength of Velta was the support of the masses he had this charisma which no other person after MGR had in ADMK the party she led so that was her greatest strength when she became the chief minister, it was a big revelation to her also, I think, because she was holding on to MGR's name as a talisman during her campaigns and all that. But once she came to power with a massive majority and uh, crowd surging to hear her support, to just see her, you see, uh, she was looking, charming, and she knew the way to speak to the masses in a very, I mean, cordial way, I mean, very endearing way. And uh, so they just fell for her and uh, that gave her the confidence that she did not need any talisman. She could win the elections on her own and it was her strength. She realized her strength at that time. And so that was the thing, biggest thing, you know, that because she could defeat the DMK. And uh, Karunanidhi's biggest threat she became. And uh, Karunanidhi lost election several times. At her, her affability didn't extend to the media, did it? He didn't, couldn't tolerate uh, 
any criticism. That is why the media, she was against the media all the time. She wanted people only to praise her and uh, she never liked, uh, you know, all dictators. No dictator wants any criticism. So, um, neither Indra Gandhi nor Sirimao, they liked uh, anybody to criticize. So, uh, despot by a different yardstick, Jai Lalita didn't come from politics, so she must have arrived with a sense of insecurity. And uh, yes. the contrast is Indira Gandhi. She had come from privilege and from a political background. So there, there is the distinction. Yes, certainly, certainly. Dayalalita came from the film world as well, though she didn't, uh, she was a very reluctant actress, she said, but once she entered acting, she became a full-fledged actress. And um, also, you know, the... The kind of men she had to deal with made her devoid of all nuances, you know, that are needed. Uh, that you see in uh, Indira Gandhi. Indira Gandhi had so many other interests in nature and so many other things, and whatever it may be. But Indira Gandhi was totally different and her times were different. And uh, the uh, culture, Dravidian culture is different and you have to react the way the others uh, uh, attack you. So, did she live the politics or use the politics? She didn't do either. That is, uh, it was her own politics. She could never claim to be a Dravidianist. She did not uh, feel shy to go to the temples and show herself as a believer. And she was quite different. And though Karmanidhi proclaimed that he was an atheist, and he was an atheist. We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. The politics of the state of Tamil Nadu appears to have moved from a post-independence national consciousness to the revolution and escaped this austere atheist intellectual decay movement into a dependence on larger-than-life personalities, sinistars and cutouts. And you came back to Tamil Nadu and to its politics as a journalist into this environment. I'd like to quote from your book. I watched Tamil Nadu politics at close quarters for nearly a decade and marveled at the theatrics of the two dominant regional parties, the high drama between Karunanidhi and Jayalalitha, the like of which you see nowhere else in the country. One is a film scriptwriter and the other a former actress, and there is no dearth of drama and rhetoric. So, did you have re-entry problems? It was fascinating. I have always been a good student, you know. I loved, uh, I mean, reading about all this, and I was quite fascinated. And then um, I was uh, surprised at, uh, at the growing religiosity among the masses there. What happened was there was a kind of a uh, upward mobility 
uh, in the form of beliefs. We wanted it was a kind of a sanskritization, you can say, of the public, the backward community, all the backward classes that had come forward now because of education. Uh, they started behaving like the Brahmins. They started uh, inventing new rituals and traditions and all that, in fact. You know, more than the Brahmins. The Brahmins have long forgotten some of the rituals. But <laughs> I dare say. Started, you know, this Tiruvannamalai, um, Girivala, uh, and all that. I've never heard earlier. But these people started going around the hills, and uh, I don't know how many times ago, but it, it was started by all these people. Of course, partly it was commercial in a sense. No, but uh, still, there were so many rituals and customs and traditions that were reinvented by these well. So no, it didn't become a casteless society as Periyar claimed. So in your analysis, was this new religiosity a groundswell movement or was it fostered? I mean, the general public, the general public became, I mean, they, they were now, they had the freedom to um, perform all the rituals that it that was uh, the Brahmins thought they were the custodians. Back to the business of your re-entry into Tamil Nadu. Uh, both Jai Lalita and a male colleague of yours, you write, told you that you wouldn't understand Tamil Nadu politics because you weren't the right kind of Tamilian? Did it bother you? No, I didn't much care for all this. <laughs> Because I was so busy and engrossed in my work. I was writing a regular column in India today, uh, which all the politicians read those days, and Karunanidhi especially. He was a keen reader of my columns. He would read every, the very morning it appeared, and then he would call me at 6 o'clock in the morning and admonish me if it was okay to him. <laughs> And or else he will praise me. I mean, he said, right. you have written very well. Yes, I've been told that Karnanadi uh, enjoyed journalism and he would engage with journalists. Karnanadi had this habit because he himself was a journalist. Right, and Jailalita wasn't. But Jailalita would never, never respond to any of the things. She would only take you to court. <laughs> Defamation suit. <laughs> the current... Governance of Tamil Nadu seems to be based on pragmatism. Does the journalist in you agree? Yes, I think so. I think Stalin has brought about a kind of a, a change in the way he deals with the opposition parties. And generally speaking, they say he is, he is very communicative with his officers and all that. I'm no longer in Tamil Nadu, so I cannot give you the first-hand information. But the general feeling is he is uh, not like uh, Karnanidhi or Jayalalitha, who don't uh, communicate with the opposition party people and all that. He seems to be quite tolerant. I mean, giving giving them space in the assembly, making them speak and all that. So I think it's... Uh, there is a change in the atmosphere, and it has to change. Times are changing, and it's a very natural process, I think. 
So this natural process, has the state moved on from giant cutouts? And yes, because he has forbidden his uh, carders to, you know, raise cutouts and uh, even to praise him in the assembly. He says there are more important things to discuss and he don't waste your time praising me. You know. All these are welcome people. Before I move on to your book, another question. As a journalist and a biographer, how do you reconcile with sometimes what you see and encounter is different from what you have read and researched? Oh, one complements the other, I suppose, your personal experience. And also, you know, my being a creator, a creative writer as well, I feel, I honestly feel, I don't know if you agree with me or believe my words, a creative writer's perception helps a journalist. You know, a journalist being also a creative writer. You can perceive certain things that uh, another day-to-day journalist uh, perceives. You know, that's what I feel. You know, you have a kind of a sixth sense, I feel. You may think that I'm a little conceited in saying that. But certain things come to the creative writer's mind and... uh, That that is why I'm saying what you read and what you see, they complement each other. And apart from that, above all that, you have your own perception of uh, the way people behave, of the way there are twists in the street, and why certain things happen. Give me an example. For instance, as I told you, when Jayalalitha stood before the crowds after her victory, it must have been a kind of a feeling of freedom. She was, she was free from the clutches of the memory, the haunting memory of MGR. She must have felt, you know, that she was liberated. It was a sense of liberation. So I thought that that was a creative writer's perception because no other written like that. Oh, yeah, that's pretty creative. <laughs> In this case, your insight was her state of mind. No, so because people were saying, you know, that she had stopped talking about uh, MGR. Why? They said. So this is my explanation. She felt liberated. And duly liberated, she came into her own. And how? And now moving on to your book. Your new book is called Breaking Free. It has just been released. And would you mind summarizing this book for our listeners? No, it is about... um, three generations of women and it, uh, the protagonist is uh, Kasturi, the, who is a Devadasi. Devadasi were, I mean, uh, the servants of God, literally, literally translated. And um, as I have written in the afterword, you, have, you must have read my afterword. And so it was uh, a chance meeting the Devadasi that happened. One, you know, during our editorial meeting, each one throws an idea for a write a story. And someone said, what happened to those Devadasis or Vesteriers who were so famous, no one talks about it. Because once I met um, an IAS officer, Guhan, 
who was uh, deeply interested in arts and he was a friend of uh, Bada Saraswati. He said the Devadasis, uh, the, the service they rendered to art has been completely forgotten. Nobody speaks about them. And uh, Bharatanatyam now has been taken over by upper caste women. And so that's a very sad thing, he said. And so then during the editorial meeting in uh, India today, I just noted this question. What has happened to the Devadasis? And does anyone know if there are uh, those old Devadasis, famous Devadasis still alive? And so we made a search and then we found out that there were about four or five Devadasis who were very famous in, the, in their time. And they were staying in various places like Tanjavur and Pudupai and other places. And since I am very interested in dance and music, I have learned dance and music when I was young. So I had a deep interest in this subject. So I went to see these Devadasis. And then I, I found them so fascinating. They were all in their 80s. Then the, when I asked them to sing, the, a very famous musician she was once, and she had uh, won the Kalaimamani Award from Karunanidhi. And she, I asked her to sing. She at once sang. And she was so happy to find that there was someone who was asking her to sing. And then uh, she sang so beautifully. And then I went to another uh, place um, to meet uh, the once famous uh, dancer, Jayalakshmi. He was uh, actually a bedridden at the time. She had no teeth and her hair was all gray. And then I said, uh, mind you are in bed. I, I came so eagerly to see if you could show me some of the Abhinayas, I said. She's, she at once got up from the bed, sat, sat on the bed, of course, and asked her, uh, granddaughter or someone nearby. She asked her to bring a mirror and then she just made her hair like this and then she showed me some Abhinaya. She mimed I had tears in my eyes, I tell you. She was so old, but then the spark that came to their eyes when they spoke about art showed how deeply they were in, uh, you know, pursuing the dance form. And uh, I met several others. One, Mridangam Midwan, and she was living like an ascetic. And they all spoke how much they were immersed in their art. And when I asked them about the humiliation they met, because Devadasis, as a community, fell under this, uh, this thing, you know, this... Uh, Disrepute. Uh, yeah, that's right. And so I, when I asked them, they just brushed it aside. I said, they said uh, it showed that they just didn't care about all those things because they were so preoccupied with what they were doing. And uh, like you know, like a true Advaita, Advaiti, they uh, neither praise nor uh, insult touched them. And by what process did that become a book? I wrote an article about them and uh, how their art was uh, forgotten and then 
nobody pursues in the devadasi community now they are called ishai vedalas and uh, but still none of their children pursue art now the whole community shuns the word devadasi they don't want to speak about it mention about it such was their humiliation feeling of uh, you know hurt uh, but i wrote this article and there was uh, such a furor even in the assembly because they thought i was uh, trying to revive the devadasi system and then they wrote such nasty things about me and i was totally shocked it was a cultural shock to me having gone from you know born and brought up in karnataka and i lived in the north i was shocked they it was very nasty the way they wrote about me in their journals and that incident led to the story in breaking free it's quite fascinating towards the middle of the book there's a passage the pages really where kasturi is heckled by an audience before she can dance because this audience doesn't want a devadasi dancing but one thing leads to another and she dances and then she is applauded hugely and that is actually a very interesting fulcrum point in the book but no spoilers here uh for all our listeners there's a link in the podcast description to where you might buy a copy of breaking free and moving on now to your abilities as a bilingual person and a bilingual writer i don't need to ask i mean i can tell that you think in english you do mental math in english you grew up in bangalore it's where you went to school so you would have had a, a different multidimensional environment but when you write tamil fiction tamil prose you must immerse yourself completely in that ambit correct yeah tamil when i write fiction it is always tamil i cannot write fiction in english uh, i write um, uh, only non fiction in english but when if it is fiction it is only tamil i feel uh, i feel very relaxed and uh, i feel i am one with the language do you ever translate your own work i have done one story but then it is such a bother you know to go back to the same that the intensity of feeling with which you wrote the original story and to go back to that it's a bit difficult and then um, i feel i can write some other story during that time <laughs> and that makes so much sense now to end with a question that's got to be the cliche of clichés what's next for you i don't know maybe i'll write some short stories in tamil well that gives us something to look forward to oh, that's very nice it's always nice to have readers you know well you have one right here and vasanthi on that note thank you so much for being my guest on the literary city today thank you so much and uh, this was an amazing uh, conversation that we have had and i'm very happy for it the privilege was all mine thank you ramji and that was the fascinating vasanthi a writer author journalist equally fluent in english and in tamil and i'll be back with what's that word and i'm back with what's that word a fun segment where we look at words and phrases that we use every day but never stop to think about and here she is you know her from a whole season before 
I'll let her introduce herself. Hello, my name is Pranati, but you can call me P. That's P with an A, not another E. And hello again, P with an A. How's it going? Hey, did you know that the letter P is both versatile and adaptable? As am I. Right. There is no P in modesty. <laughs> so, is there significance to the letter P? Yes, the P is interesting. You know, I have had a long-standing interest and involvement in typography, but I won't go there today. It's it's too boring. Uh, although the uh, how letters came to be formed has very interesting history, but the P is interesting for other reasons. Oh, goody! And what is that? Right, drawing from the Phoenician symbol PE, the Greeks kind of made it their own, and they called it pi, the geometry fundamental. Hmm. And then the Romans made it their 16th letter of the alphabet, and that's the way we know it today. Wow. So my name is related to that complex math phenomenon, pi. Yes, true. And there are some similarities between you and pi. Cool. What what similarity with pi? Pi never stops. <laughs> and there are differences. <laughs> no, no. What? Sometimes pi is silent. <laughs> Hey, what sort of co-host would I be if I didn't say a word now? Okay. But listen, are there many words with the silent P? No, not many. Just ten. That's it? Yeah. Well, only five if you count all the words beginning with psycho as one. Mm, yeah, like uh, psychology. Right, psychology. Yeah, and psychotherapy, psychiatry. Psychosomatic, psychotic. Okay, that's five. And the other five are? Off the balance, two begin with P. Those would be pseudo and uh, pneumonia. And the others have the silent P elsewhere, like coup, cupboard, receipt. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. We never stop to think about this, do we? <laughs> we do. That's our job. We're doing it now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot. I mean, this whole thing is like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know that P is not the only letter of the English alphabet that is silent. Like? There are 12 others, and I'll name okay. them. B, C, mm. D, E, G, H, K, L, N, T, U, and W. Interesting. But when is the E silent? Like, how can an E be silent? I see what you mean. Well, the E can be silent at the end of a word. Oh, right. Like? Debate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, now, now, now the letter W. Give me a word with a silent W. Mm, okay, here's one. Awry. Awry, of course. Yes, spell A-W-R-Y. Correct. But, you know, I have heard people pronounce this word awry. Tell them not to. <laughs> Next time I will. <laughs> okay, P with an A. What else do we have today? So your interview with Vasanti, mm -hmm. I enjoyed listening to her and learned so much about the Devdasis. Yeah. Her story was so touching. Vasanti, she's great. And she's a Bangalore girl, just like me. Yeah, she is a Bangalore girl. And she studied in Kamla Bai School, as did my mother around the same time as I discovered while chatting with her. Wow, that's cool. Indeed. Well, okay. P with an A, what's that word? In your interview with Vasanti, um, she used the word coterie. It 
sounds strange. Yes, it is an interesting word. Yeah, so Ainu Kotri means specific people who belong to a group, but dish on the etymology. Yes, you're right. Kotri is from the French, and the word has its origins in the feudal system. You see, originally the word referred to a group of peasants who are in the service of, well, let's call him a feudal lord. And when they organized into a group, they were called a coterie. Now, coterie comes from the word cot, which means cottage. And its larger meaning is people of similar interests. And the earliest recorded use of this word was back in the 18th century, say about 1730-ish, from the Middle French. And that was drawing from medieval Latin. And it, and it referred to, as I said, an association of tenant farmers. Right, but it is used wider these days, right? Sort of. Well, not really, if you think about it. The word refers to a group of people with similar interests. So you would not be wrong to refer to a, say, coterie of artists or a coterie of lawyers. Ah, speaking of whom, mm -hmm. the word is not used in a positive way, is it? I mean, Vasanthi used the word in a pretty negative sense. Quite right. In politics, for instance, when you hear coterie, you always think of cabals and backstabbing psychophants. Right. So, you know, political leaders are known to have a coterie of individuals who become useful and typically in some underhanded way. Yeah, and actors and other rich people have a coterie around them, don't they? Yeah, they do. What are they called now? Uh, yeah, an entourage. Entourage, another French word. You know, the French clearly had something against, you know, groups of self-interested people with a self-serving agenda. I wonder why. <laughs> mm. Except for Bastille Day, when a very large group of people brought down... Louis XVI. Well, that large group of people was in the coterie. Louis XVI's coterie was beheaded, remember? Mm, that's true. Hey, wait a second. That anniversary mm -hmm. is tomorrow, July 14th. Ah oui, demain, 14 juillet. Vive la révolution! <laughs> well, in celebration, you must go and warm up those croissants that you have for tomorrow in your microwave. You know, the one that makes very useful révolutions? <laughs> On my way. Allons, mes enfants, already. And that's our show. Thank you so much for being here and for listening. And see you again next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs>